Ellis East Elementary Walkthrough, May 18th, Classroom 3B. The classroom is at the end of the hallway on the other side of the library opposite the music room. Beyond the door is the final bank of lockers and then the back staircase, which is functionally identical to the side staircase. The room is mostly empty, its floor polished wood like the rest of the classrooms I have visited on this side of the building so far. It is notable that the exposed walls are painted a pale lilac color. Like the music room, there are built-in cabinets sitting open and empty. Similarly, the western wall has the trademark row of windows with a radiator underneath and shelving on either side of it. There is a large paisley rug in the middle of the floor with vermilion and royal blue, covering about half the floor's surface area in total. There is an Encyclopedia Britannica on the shelf, the 1998 edition. It is mostly complete, but volume 13 is missing, which is the first entry of the Macropedia and seems to be topics before the Arctic. That includes architecture. So you're certain it was empty? As far as I could tell. What was it like down there? I can't say. We'll revisit this question in the daylight. Well, it seems like everyone has regrouped here. There's your dad. Duncan, has the game ended? Yes, everyone back and accounted for. Is everything okay? Georgie, what's wrong? Where were you two? I stepped away from the party for a moment and I returned and found the basement was unlocked and there was a game of sardines in progress. We had to make sure no one was down there. Basement isn't safe. Mom and I made sure they stayed on the first floor. You seem upset about something else. How was the basement unlocked? Who opened that trapdoor? It's okay. Everyone is here. Dad, did you already know about the trapdoor? Okay, here we are. You said there was a trapdoor? Yeah, but we took out the hinges. It can't be too safe. Anyway, before we get down there, I want to make sure everything is structurally sound. Those stairs are safe. They seem to be carved from solid stone. There are lights down here. Okay, I'm coming down. What's with the jug of water? Oh, it's nothing. Okay. Well, I'm going to go have a look around. Is that Daryl's holy water? He left like five jugs of the stuff after everything that happened at the party. I figured it couldn't hurt to bring it down with us. Fair enough. So this is really cool. I don't see anything structurally dangerous. I think my work here is officially done. But would you mind if I poke around? You don't see a full sub-basement like this every day. Or, well, ever. By all means, just be careful. Audio Diary of Anna Georgina Plume, July 16th, 2 p.m. We just concluded preliminary exploration of the sub-basement. 
I called a contractor to inspect it because I wasn't certain of the structural safety. I am still uncertain of the existential safety. The sub-basement has some rough stone stairs leading down to a central hallway-like antechamber. Despite the rough nature of both the basement above it and the stairs leading down to it, the antechamber has an elaborately tiled floor patterned in an Art Deco motif. The doors are wooden with a pattern complementing the tile, and the stonework above each door has the sharp angular lines of the era, further adding to the theme. I would hypothesize that these rooms were decorated sometime in the 1920s. There are five rooms branching off this antechamber. Four of them are classroom size and appear to be used for storage, but storage of much older items than those upstairs. I have not, to date, found many school items predating the 1970s, with the exception of yearbooks, class photos, and school records. But textbooks, furniture, school supplies, playsets, literally everything you would imagine from the day-to-day -day workings of the school have largely been from the past 50 years, usually from the past 30 years. The items in these rooms downstairs are older. Boxes of textbooks from the 1950s, flats from school plays that I cannot personally date, furniture, some of which looks to be very valuable. Eventually, I want to take inventory of all the items stored down there, but I want to observe for signs that all is well before spending extended time in the sub-basement. The discovery in the fifth and final room was the most startling, an empty swimming pool. The pool was decorated in the Art Deco motif of the rest of the sub-basement. It was tiled in rich emerald green with gold accents and surrounded by pillars with fan-like decoration. I did not have the tools to measure the length or width of the pool, but at its deepest, it is six feet, and at its shallowest, it is three feet. This discovery is huge. There is no evidence that this was here in any of the records I have found. But even more strange, I am to understand that the abnormalities surrounding the basement are caused by Algernon Hobbes, his death, his lingering anger, and yet the decoration of the sub-basement suggests that it was at the very least decorated after the deaths of Algernon and James Reeve. I must investigate this further. There must be a story here. Notes on Public Sculpture in Ellis Field, Part 1, July 16th, 2.30 p.m., recording by Philip William Oker. Okay, A.G., I'm trying this. Ellis Field, Ohio, is a small town that would be otherwise unremarkable were it not for its approach to green space and public sculpture. In the 1980s, Facing the same blight as many other small towns in the Rust Belt, many houses were abandoned as residents left Ellis Field for areas with more job opportunities. Small town population decline. It's a story we know well. But what Ellis Field did differently was they converted a number of abandoned, condemned buildings back into green space, effectively making the remaining houses more desirable for new residents. The masterstroke in all of this was the brainchild of Mayor Duncan Plume, who has a passion for public art, as well as fondness for gazebos that is lightly teased and parodied in the local paper. Plume connected with a number of sculpture artists, 
many of whom are from the Black Swamp region of northwestern Ohio, where Ellis Field is located, and coordinated grants for funding of public art to decorate these green spaces. The result is a village that appears to have been built around a sculpture garden, which gives any famous sculpture garden a run for their money. I have chosen to study Ellis Field because I believe that it is a compelling example of public art, but also serves as a case study for the ways in which a community might use public art to counter rust belt decay. The first point of our exploration is the perfect example of an artist integrating their art with the landscape. We will start on the edge of town with the Garden of the Stars. (sighs) Okay, that's good. How does she focus on work? Like, oh, the basement that tried to kill us. There's another basement underneath it. Well, time to go look at the archives, I guess, and see what's happening with the burgeoning romance between Lucy and Helena, I mean the history of the school. Really, how does she compartmentalize this all? Audio Diary of Dr. Anna Georgina Plume, July 16th, 4.30 p.m. We are behind the school. We have removed the cedar chest from the shed. It is time to rip off this band-aid. What makes you think it will be bad? It's from the basement. Rip the band-aid off, and then we can do a double feature movie night. We've got plenty of leftover food from the party. Deal. I'm feeling Scorsese. Maybe the 1973 classic Goncharov, and then the critically acclaimed dachshund romance Hugo. Whatever you feel up to. Okay. There's a rusty lock on the chest. I found some bolt cutters in the janitor's office. Ugh, I hate the smell of mothballs. Occupational hazard of studying old buildings, I guess. What's in there? It's beautiful. It is a dress. Fashion history is not my field of study, but I would say late 1920s. Chartreuse silk with elaborate beadwork, cap sleeves, drop waist, in pristine condition. I'll make inquiries with the preservationist to ensure that it's properly cared for. Anything else? Hmm. Here's a charm. Is that another horse? No, there's texture to it. Those are stripes. A zebra? Another carousel animal. What else is in there? More clothes. Same era, less formal. And some... documents. I swear... I'm going to have an aneurysm if I find any more poorly preserved documents. Audio Diary of Dr. Anna Georgina Plume, July 16th, 4.45 p.m. Well, I seem to have reached the end of Lucy and Helena's story, or what's recorded of it anyway. So let's take a look in the next box from Melinda Basil. This box is the one labeled 1912 to 1917. Wait, I think. The handwriting is unclear. Is that a two? Upon further inspection, 
it's 1912 to 1927. And the next box is, yeah, that's right, 1927 to 1930. Don't ask me how that happened. There's literally a two in 1912. Any rate, moving on. Not going to cast aspersions on Ms. Basil's handwriting, but clearly labeling things is a key skill. Come on, Melinda. Moving right along. What I have here is a folder of photocopied letters. The first of them is dated January 1st, 1927. Letter from Elizabeth Reeve Messinger to someone known only as R. Elizabeth would have been in her early 40s at that time, if my math is correct. I have a PhD in the humanities, so my math may not be correct. Letter reads, Dear R, Our return to Ellis Field occurred inauspiciously on the day before Christmas Eve, in the middle of a snowstorm which was strangely punctuated by thunder. The odd weather has cast an eerie mood over the whole town and persists even today. We received a warm welcome from Lucy and my mother and have settled in the guest room in the house across the street from the school where they moved when the school made the shift to being a public school. I have mixed feelings about this return. This is the place where my father died suddenly in a fashion that neither my mother nor Lucy can explain. They claim his death was an accident, though they can relay no further details. This has long haunted me over the years, and upon leaving for my college education, I have not been able to bring myself to return until this journey. And yet, returning to the school feels like returning to an old friend. Walking the hallways, I feel a connection to the past that I had pushed from my memory, a happiness that shines on me throughout the building. As you are well aware, we are returning to Ellis Field upon my mother's retirement for me to take over the direction of the library. Carl is opening a law practice in Ellis Field and Geneva will continue her final year of high school education at the school at Ellis Field. Geneva is, of course, upset about the change in scenery. Ellis Field is a far cry from life in Chicago and she is leaving everything she has ever known. The only time I have seen her express anything but sadness was when we were touring the school, particularly the library. Seeing her among the books has given me hope that we can adjust as a family. She has resumed writing and has asked that I enclose a couple of her poems for your feedback. A.G. Plume Commentary. The poems are not included in the papers that I have received. Resuming letter. One decidedly unsettling matter. My mother and Lucy are undertaking a project in the basement of the school. Specifically, they are bringing in an architect to examine a previously unused space under the basement and convert that into usable space. 
It should be noted that the school building still technically belongs to Lucy and has been leased by the school district, so she is entitled to do what she wishes with the building. Though neither my mother nor Lucy has been really forthcoming with any good reason as to why they need this sub-basement renovation. I hear them whispering about how this is important to their plans, but they always stop talking whenever Carl or I enter the room. I believe I hear them using the word consecrated, but that cannot possibly be what I'm actually hearing. It is growing late and I still need to reshelve many books in the library. Please write back soon, E. A.G. Plume Commentary. Well, there's the sub-basement, I guess. Consecrated? Lucy, Helena, what were you up to? Good evening. This is Radio Ellis Field. Today is February 1st, 1927, and I'm your intrepid hostess, Rose in Bloom. Next, the local news, but first, Alice, where art thou?
Well, this is new. Ellis East Elementary Walkthrough, May 18th. Woof. The corner of the rug is turned over. At least no one is here to see me trip. I mean, this recording is, I guess. Anyway, there is not much else to report in this room, but what's this? There is a piece of paper under the rug. It has a symbol on it that looks like an upside-down bracket. Since there appears to be nothing else here, and I don't want to trip again, I will finally go next door to the library. Lavender Evening Fog is a fiction podcast. This episode was written by Victoria Dickman Burnett, direction and script supervision by Ben Baird, produced, mixed, and edited by Nick Federico, with additional editing by Victoria Dickman Burnett. Executive producers are Ben Baird and Victoria Dickman Burnett. The voice of Anna Georgina Plume is Victoria Dickman Burnett. The voice of Billy is Nick Federinko. The voice of Mayor Duncan Plume is David German. The voice of the contractor is Jen Park. The Lavender Evening Fog logo was designed by Allison Dickman, and Ms. Bitey, our carousel opossum, was designed by Matt Lowe. This episode is brought to you by Everything Falling Apart. This episode pairs well with a rich black tea with notes of sweet maple. Alice, Where Art Thou? was composed by Joseph Asher with lyrics by Wellington Guernsey and performed by Carmela Ponzel. The song is in the public domain and was made available through the Library of Congress's National Jukebox.